0: Thank you for choosing the OECD
1: podcast.
0: Welcome to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young, and I'm here with Michael Bordeaux. Mr. Bordeaux, you are a Canadian economist. You are Professor of Economics and Director of the Centre for Monetary and Financial History at Rutgers University. You specialize in economic and financial history, and particularly in financial crises, which is the great topic of today's conversation. Welcome, Professor oh, thank Bordeaux. You. Thank you. We are now 10 years from the financial crisis that uh, resulted from panic over the defaulting of subprime mortgage loans, and then the ensuing Great Recession, which is now what we call it. At the OECD, we are very much talking about what have we learned in the 10 years following the crisis and how can we prevent it, and that's the subject of today's conversation. So my first question is this. Six years ago, you spoke about comparison between the Great Recession starting in 2007-2008 and the Great Depression of the 1930s, and you said that... um, In comparison, the recession was quite mild, especially in terms of unemployment and the contraction of the GDP. Do you still hold to that now, six years later? I mean, it's true that U.S. unemployment and the GDP is back to pre-crisis levels, but are there perhaps damage of a a different sort or longer term that that you see now?
1: The first thing I'll say is it's too soon to tell. But when you talk about long-run damage, you start seeing it over a longer period of time. Yeah. But um, I think that the Great Depression was such an event that w- when we like to make comparisons to it, we have to be really careful what are we talking about. The Great Depression involved a drop in real GDP in in the U.S., in Canada, in Germany, and in other countries of about 30%. And uh, unemployment shot up to 25%. in. 2007 to 2009, GDP declined by around 5%, and unemployment didn't even quite hit 10%. So in the Great Depression, it took all the way until World War II for the U.S. to get back to the employment level that it had in 1929. So that's 12 years. The real economy didn't get quite back to where it was depending on what measures you look at, until about 1950 or so. So it really took a long time. Um, and the damage was absolutely incredible because what did we get out of that? We got World War II out of it. So we're talking about something totally different. What do we get out of this one now? We get Trump. Okay, and some of this other stuff. So it, it, is it that same level of damage? I don't think so. However, the slow recovery that we've had in the United States, and Canada didn't have any of this, Canada was got out of this scot-free, uh, by the way. Um, the slow recovery, w- w- uh, in a sense, is part of the issue why people uh, have been so upset about it, the fact that the economy is only now reaching growth rates that it had uh, before 2007. And so the slow recovery meant that it dragged on for a long time. and. There's a lot of questions about why did we have a slow recovery. Some people who argue it's because we had a financial crisis. My research actually shows that serious financial crises often lead to fast recoveries.
0: You actually argue that uh the quantitative easing that the that the Obama administration uh used was the right solution but that it wasn't Substantially enough that they could have pumped even more money into the so, system. And so what could...
1: I yeah, what I thought was that, and I, I said this a few years ago. I've, I've changed my views a little bit, but what I thought was at the time that QE uh, and I interpreted that as just major open market operations. Okay, I thought that was the right policy, and buying n- non-conventional securities, I thought that was a good idea, and I was thinking. Back to my thesis advisor, Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. and what I've known about, you know, what do you do in a Great Depression? You just print money. You know, he had the story of helicopters.
0: Right. What's, okay. the, what's the story of helicopters? Oh, he...
1: Do I, tell us. Uh, <laughs> he had this famous paper that was published in 1969, which is what he based his, some of his lectures on. And so he said, what you do is, if you want to stimulate the economy, you just have helicopters drop... Drop paper bills, and people will spend them. Right. Okay, Ben Bernanke uh, picked that up in one of his papers when he was a governor of the Fed, and he got the nickname Helicopter Ben. Right. Okay, so, but Friedman was basically saying, look, there's a collapse in economic activity. What do you do? You could follow very expansionary monetary policy. Mm -hmm. Or he talked about earlier in his career, he said, run big fiscal deficit, finance it with money. Right. So I thought, okay, that's what you do. Uh, and you've got to do enough of it to get a recovery. So they didn't do enough. Mm. But then they engaged in other types of policies later, after QE1. They started engaging in, in changing the mix of bonds that they were buying. Right. They engaged in forward guidance, which was sort of telling the markets what they would do. The problem was they kept changing their mind. Right. So this created uncertainty and, in a sense, negated some of the benefits of actually increasing the quantity of money and buying bonds.
0: That actually reminds me of another question I have, which is the link between that and inequality, which is increasingly uh, a focus of what we're looking at, the OECD, and I wanted to know know, your thoughts on that, because quantitative easing was viewed as an unconventional monetary policy. I mean, it hasn't been around for ages. It's only been since 2001 or uh, since the Japanese crisis. But it seems to be something that the authorities are using increasingly. And should we be concerned? And is there is a connection between quantitative easing and inequality?
1: I cannot see any link. I see inequality as a reflection of real forces in the economy. By real forces, I mean the forces that drive economic growth. And when you have slow growth, you tend to get rising inequality. Um, And I think that slow growth, globalization to a certain extent, are the forces behind many of the changes that have occurred uh, in the economy. But I don't think it has anything to do with monetary policy. Mm -hmm. I think in recessions, generally you do find that low-income people tend to suffer more because they're laid off more. But that's a cyclical phenomenon.
0: Well, but the austerity policies, in the U.S., Canada, the U.K.,
1: that exacerbated that. Those policies, again, were dealing with, with, with short-run issues. Okay, when you're dealing with a financial crisis, a uh, recession, you're using macro tools, and they can only work for a short period of time. And when you're talking about a fundamental change in the economy, which is level of inequality, That's a long-run phenomenon. Structural. It's a structural problem.
0: What about, you know, another mystery that is preoccupying economists right now, which is stagnant real wages, that, you know, even though unemployment is very low, the wages remain stuck. Is there any connection to the crisis, um, this situation?
1: Again, you have to separate out cyclical effects, Mm -hmm. which are effects that run from, say, three years To five or maybe even eight from secular effects, which are periods of long, very long periods of 10, 20, 30 years. And if there's a temporary drop in real incomes and wages that have slowed down, there's that problem, which I think is there. But more important, getting to the structural long term problems, is that with the growth of technology and globalization, and the fact that what we've seen in the past, Thirty or forty years, is this incredible growth of poor countries like China and India that are, people are rising out of real poverty? Okay, not just low income, but real poverty, and also that labor supply in the world has expanded incredibly with the transformation of China. And so, simple econ one o one, the supply of labor in the world is is expanding. And you can't just separate the supply of labor in each country from the rest of the world. And that other things equal will keep wages from growing. You can't deal with that with cyclical policy.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to um, the issue of regulation. And, we, and you talked about that a little bit in, in the in the talk that you just gave here, the OECD. You know, thanks to Dodd-Frank and uh, Basel three and... Uh, You know, those sorts of rules have been put in place. Uh, Banks have higher capital reserves. There's better risk management, uh, stress tests. And and we're not seeing now sort of the high wire act that the financial industry was engaging in leading up to 2008. But something that you touched upon earlier as well is that you seem to hint at that perhaps too much regulation – has his own problems, causes his own problems um, and one of them, I th- I'm thinking, could be this shadow banking phenomenon, the growth of it. And the Financial Stability Board uh, in, a, in a report, in a recent report, uh, said that risky shadow banking assets have grown by 7.6% in 2016. So. What's your feeling about shadow banking, and should we be worried?
1: Um, well, the first point I want to make as an economic historian is that we've always had shadow banks. Okay? We've always had the, the commercial banking system, which is regulated, and then we've had these other financial institutions, which aren't, right. which, uh, in a sense, uh, take risks, which the banks are not allowed to take, And they pay higher returns on their deposits or their certificates or whatever. Okay, And so they're obviously attractive to people because they pay a higher return, but there's a risk there. So what do we do about that? Well, in a sense, if we regulate them uh, and bring them in under the umbrella of the banking system, then what will happen is that there will be new entities that will come up that you don't even know about. And so what, what I think you should do is you should make a decision of who gets regulated and who gets saved and who doesn't. And you say, look, uh, commercial banks provide means of payment. They provide the deposits are, are part of the money supply. And the banks provide the payment system. And that's a crucial public good for any economy. When the payment system goes, it's total chaos. So, we should guarantee that we're not going to allow the payment system to fail, and that's what we do. We regulate them, we have deposit insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and that, I believe, is what we should have. The rest of them.
0: in which, we, what we do have.
1: That's what we do have. The rest of them, my view, is very, a very old fashioned term. Okay, sauve qui The French word means too bad, tough luck. Or buyer beware. Buyer beware. And those people who invest in these activities, who take loans, are taking risks. They should be aware of the risks that they're taking. And what we should be thinking about is protecting the payment system from them.
0: The payment system from?
1: From the shadow banking system. Mm-hmm. That You know, unless you decide, you do what, in a sense, Ireland did in 2008, which you say we're going to protect the entire financial system, which means you're taking on a liability, which eventually, if there was a problem, the taxpayers would have to cover. And then you transform a banking issue into a sovereign debt issue. If you don't want to do that, you have to draw the line somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And I think that there needs to be some risk in the economy, and there need to be consequences for people taking on risk.
0: Right. I'm just going to ask one last question. Okay. Though we uh, try to learn from history, uh, the information and the technology and the pace keeps changing. And, you know, in, the, in, the, in, the, in 2008, the problem was, you know, the securitized bundled subprime mortgage loans and the way they spread. And, and it took uh, the market a long time to figure out what that was and how it was getting into everything and how it was spreading. And so there's, we're always playing catch-up and they say that with the, these regulations that we have now, that as soon as they made them, they were behind. So, you know, just in the big picture, what can we do about the fact that we are always a little bit out of the loop?
1: In okay. Terms of- so here I think that there's this debate sort of out there between having regulations where you'd say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, which is the approach that's taken in the United States, in England and Canada, which is... Let's have some principles, some rules, about what to do under certain circumstances. Okay, so we have guiding principles, but we don't regulate every activity. That's the way I think it should go.
0: So what, for example, is a guiding principle in Canada?
1: Um, Okay, let me think about it. Uh, So in Canada, what they've done is, I mean, the, the chartered banks, they're pretty heavily regulated. Um, but the charter banks have also over time have become universal banks so that the stockbrokers and the mortgage finance, all is within that that in the Canadian banking system and so the government regulates them carefully mm-hmm. and that's it, they leave them alone and they say anybody that's going to be providing payment services to the public, we are going to regulate and the rest of them, they, they, they really don't that you decide. On, we're just not going to set up regulations for every part of the economy,
0: right? And so, so banks like, for example, Toronto Dominion, where they—that's the bank—and then they're the same bank in all the different provinces in yeah, Canada. Right. Whereas in the states, you have every state has their own regulation, yeah. and you have all these. So that's a whole banks. different issue. That's mm. a
1: big problem. If you want to get into the United States, one of the big problems they've had in the past was the banking system structure was a huge problem. They now have nationwide branch banking in the States, which Canada does too, and they have universal banking too, but they do not have the kind of regulatory oversight that Canada has. So in Canada, you've got the Bank of Canada is a central bank, okay, and then you have OFSI and it regulates all of the financial institutions, one regulator. That regulator is in close coordination with the Bank of Canada. What do you have in the States? You've got the Federal Reserve, and then you've got something like 12 or 14 different regulators that regulate each of these markets. And so what happens is you get these coordination problems. Right. Okay, where each regulator is connected to the industry it's regulating, worries about its problems, doesn't think of the spillover effects. Now, they have this council that they've set up under Dodd-Frank, which is supposed to do that. But it's, uh, you know, I don't want to go into details, but it, it hasn't really done very much. And mm. it's unclear it will really work. So the thing that I wanted for Canada, for the U.S., was to set up something like they have in the U.K.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Canada, New Zealand, Australia, you have maybe one financial regulator. Right. Or two, but not 14.
0: hmm too fragmented.
1: It's too fragmented.
0: Right. Thank you, Professor Bordo. I'm Clara Young for the OECD podcast. Thank you for listening.